Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And this is the Standing With Stones Megalithic Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who have supported us through Patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash standingwithstones. Welcome to the sixth Standing With Stones monthly podcast. That's a tongue twister if ever there was one. The sixth you wrote Standing it. With Stones monthly podcast. And on we go with yet more prehistoric news and wonders. Uh, this month's main theme is something we find particularly tantalising and we're always developing quietly in the background, perhaps for a bigger future project. It's megaliths around the world. Megaliths around the world, absolutely. And also, maybe before we start, this is a good moment to let you know, I've been editing more film from my recent trip to Cornwall about the Neolithic village at Routor, which has also got a little surprise not far away from it, which is called the Routor Long Cairn. Very exciting. Uh, I have been editing, it, and as usual, it will be freely available to view on our website, and I think by the time you're hearing this podcast, it will be up. Uh, our patron Patreon patrons have been able to see it for the last uh, seven days, um, but everyone will be able to see it from the 5th, which I think is probably will be today or yesterday. I'm so glad I know which date it is. Anyway, <laughs> started well, hasn't it? So starting off the show yet again, and it's time to push back a boundary, I think, Rupert, isn't it? Mr. Soskin, what have you got? I'll tell you what I've got. I've got bread, believe it or not. Bread? Is bread. Something as mundane as br- as bread has forced us to reassess a few things. Uh, basically, a team of archaeologists from the universities of Copenhagen, Cambridge, and University College London have made a remarkable discovery at a late Paleolithic hunter-gatherer site in northeast Jordan. Uh, the site is called Shubaika One. I Probably once again, dreadful pronunciation. I think it is. Shubaika. Is this another one of your pronunciations? No. I'm Mr. sorry. Soskin. I'm sorry. I do my best. Uh, <laughs> basically, it, uh, it it's an, a Natufian settlement, and in case you're interested, the Natufian culture is named after the Natuf Valley in Palestine, and they were around between roughly thirteen thousand and nine thousand BC. So we're going back a long way. And the remarkable thing here is the discovery of fragments of burnt bread. Uh, Actually, the first completely direct evidence of prehistoric bread, uh, because prior to this discovery, the existence of bread as a food has been inferred through the preparation of grains, etc. But here they have actual fragments of somebody's burnt toast. And it's 14,400 years old. No. Yes. No, I, I, no, I don't think so. You're, no, no. 
14,400 years old. Indeed. No, I think, you, I think you'll find that's wrong. That predates agriculture. Exactly. You speak wise words, Obi-Wan. That's precisely why the discovery is quite so exciting and why it is so compelling that the discovery was made at an Atufian site. Yes, but explain yourself. How can it be how how can it be dated before agriculture and there be bread? Exactly. Well, the Natufian culture existed in a transition period of human history when hunter-gatherers began to settle down to become farmers. And this bread was made from wild grains. You can just imagine it, out foraging, and this small group of people gathered grains from wild grasses, bringing it back to their temporary settlement to prepare dough and bake bread. That's a lot of effort from wild cereal. You know, the question being asked now is whether this was one of the drivers for the agricultural revolution. Oh, I see. You know, because bread is, bread is such a convenient food, but it's hugely time-consuming if you need to gather wild grain. So farming would clearly have made the whole process so much easier and faster. It's a real chicken-and-egg situation. You know, did the creation of bread arise from farming or was the rise of agricultural farming accelerated by the desire to make bread production easier to achieve? So there you are, pushing back the boundaries, 14,400-year-old bread. It's marvellous. Yep, brilliant. And links as per usual on the website if you want to find out more. Indeed. Well, so on to the news then. Uh, what do you have to kick us off this month, Mike? Well, seeing as you brought us bread, and if I'm not mistaken, in the past, you've also brought us wine. <laughs> you may seem where I'm going here. <laughs> I have the oldest cheese yet discovered. <laughs> yes? Excellent. So with your toast and your wine. <laughs> Excellent. Go on, then. What's the story? Pour goûter le vin, eh? <laughs> It's another illustration of how technology changes our understanding of things. Right, this is in Egypt, from the tomb of a chap called Tamiz, who was the mayor of Memphis back in 1300 BC. The tomb was actually discovered nearly two centuries ago, in 1885, but shifting sands concealed it again, and it was only rediscovered fairly recently in 2010. The tomb contained a few broken jars, and the contents of one of them was a solidified whitish substance as well as a canvas cloth that was thought to have covered this gunk. Now, it's the advances in biochemical technology that have made any of this analysis possible, and it turns out that the substance was indeed cheese. It's so evocative when we find anything that relates directly to people. Well, I so agree. I, even though this was found in a tomb, it still speaks very clearly of daily life. It's just more tangibly about people rather than places, which takes everything away from all this mysterious stuff and turns the most ancient and forgotten things into something we can recognise and something we yeah. can understand wow. and relate to. Well, I tell you, I've got something that is still about people, but really not so pleasant, maybe. Uh, this comes from the University of New South Wales, published in the Journal of Archaeological Method and Theory. Uh, it's an interesting new slant on old knowledge. So prehistoric mass graves 
is not really a subject many people would have come across. I, I know I hadn't. And it turns out that there are a number of such sites in the Pacific, Mediterranean and northern Scotland. And they relate to coastal societies. In northern Scotland? Indeed, in northern Scotland, oh, yeah. Um, well, standard interpretation has always been either, with this, with mass graves, standard interpretation has always been either warfare or epidemic. And the mass graves are typically identified through their lack of funerary care or custom. It's as if the whole society had been unable to cope with the sheer numbers of dead, placing them in less than elegant positions, you know, without funerary items and stuff sure, like that. Sure, sure, yeah. Um, well, the Australian team have put forward a theory that these mass graves are from the aftermath of tsunamis. Oh. And if you think about it, it, it makes total sense, but just no one's had the idea before. So they've researched areas of known tsunamis using ancient geological evidence for mass burials in places like Orkney, which is a nice one for us. Well, not somewhere you associate with tsunamis, is it really? Well, no, indeed. But then we do know that places like Scarabray, for example, were wiped. We've always of said course, big storm. Of course. But, you know, you know so um, more recent uh, historical knowledge for sites that are only, say, 500 or so years old, okay. where there's documentation to support the theory. And their plan now is uh, to, to get concrete proof, or to get concrete proof, is to test skeletal remains for microorganisms called diatoms, which, if present in the remains, uh -huh. will show that they died from saltwater asphyxiation. It's brilliant thinking. Very much watch this space, but it's a, it's a fantastic theory that would explain something that has historically been very unsatisfactorily. Oh, right. So not, uh, not proven yet, but... Um, not proven yet, no. I, no. I get the thing about the diatoms and, uh, and stuff. Mm. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Well, that, that would be fascinating because that would... Um, I bet that would set quite a lot more thought going as well as to causes mm. and, and reasons for certain people being in certain places, you know, and, and uh, Absolutely. how things Absolutely. change No, it's a fascinating time. thing, and it'll be very interesting to see where it goes. Yeah, so maybe even inform uh, what we're going to speak about later with the uh, megaliths all over the world. Oh, that is know. true, too. So yeah. It's another aspect. Anyway, so I'm going to round off the news now with this piece from Katalhoek in Turkey. Okay. Yep. I know that many of us who are fascinated by prehistory have a special place in our hearts for the truly ancient sites like Gebekli Tepe and Katalhoek. And this is yet another example of new discoveries being born from advances in biochemical technology. Right. Basically, this began with the realisation from a team at the University of Bristol that we could see how these Neolithic people adapted and worked with climate change. Right. Now, you may remember a few months ago, we talked about the massive drop in global temperature that occurred 8,200 years ago when the glacial meltwater cascaded across the planet from Canada. Indeed. Uh, well, as with all shifts in overall climate conditions, some areas experienced more drought, and from analysing cut marks from butchery on bones, the team found that these people shifted away from eating cows 
to more drought-resistant beasts like goats and sheep. Uh, now, okay. that in itself might not sound overly surprising, but what has subsequently turned up is that by analysing hydrogen isotopes, oh gosh, I sound like I know what I'm talking about, <laughs> <laughs> from the animal fats in ancient cooking pots, they can actually infer the climatic, uh, climatic conditions at the time. Oh, wow. So... Here we go. It's just yet another step forward in the amount of information which can be extracted from chemical analysis. I mean, who'd have thought? piece of fat you didn't eat could tell you what the weather was like. But somebody will tell you, no, no, climate isn't weather, and weather isn't climate. There we go. <laughs> Well, so much for the news. Um, so that means we move along to the main theme that we want to talk about in this podcast today. And, uh, well, talking about uh, talk about choosing large subjects. I don't know if we've bitten off more than we can chew with this one, Rupert. <laughs> well, it is a big one. It's a huge one. It's a huge one. But it, it's an exciting one because there's so much stuff that that, you know, generally people don't know a huge amount about. Um, and Us it's, included, I think. Well, well, yeah, well, yes, but unashamedly so. You know, it, uh, yeah, and, sure. and, and there are so many incongruous aspects to all of this. It's so hard to actually put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. Mm, mm. And that's what makes it so much fun to try. Uh, you know, and very often you don't get that far. Should we, before we sort of kick off, I mean, it, it kind of define our terms um, <laughs> because we're so used to talking about stuff in the UK and yes. you know, megaliths and stone circles and and all the rest of it. Um, that when we broaden um, the horizon, yes. <laughs> as, as we're doing, um, does it bring other things into play when we talk about megaliths around the world? Absolutely, it does. I, I, one of the things that kicked me off years ago was uh, I just wanted to see, uh, with very little in the way of expectations, I just wanted to see how how wide a net I could throw, and I mean that geographically, you know. So, uh, for, yeah. just take a radius, you know. How, how far could I go in that direction and find, let's say, dolmens? Yeah. Um, because dolmens seem to be ubiquitous, yes. and uh, and I was astonished at not just the quantity of dolmens that you find around the world, mm -hmm. but the ages of them, uh, and so all the preconceived ideas of how culture developed. Mm just nothing hung together and so ah. that sets you off with more questions yes of course and you know it's it's when you're pr constantly presented with more questions yeah. that that's when it's really intoxicating i have to warn you gentle listener that at the end of this session you'll probably be presented with even more questions than you thought possible <laughs> yes. to cram into your head absolutely absolutely <laughs> and uh, and once again unashamedly because that is what um, that that's what provokes uh, discussion and uh, you know and new theories and all sorts of stuff. See, um, Poulnebrone, I love Poulnebrone in uh, in Ireland. It's a very um, well, 
just the style of the dolmen is... It's very uh, proud, isn't it? It is. It, they're yeah. proud. Now, there you see, that is the adjective I was looking for. It is very proud. And I was astonished where quite by accident, I, start, I was trawling for just... I was looking at pictures of dolmens, and I stumbled across uh, one that looked remarkably similar to Poulnebron. And where is it? Well, it's in South Korea. Um, no. And, well, yeah. that was a surprise. Um, and uh, and so when you when you start looking at those distances, now that then begged the question. Archaeologists have uh, historically there's this gulf between the people who think that it's a shared culture, mm. and the people who think that uh, dolmen building could have arisen quite independently in different parts of the world. Yeah. And uh, and my attitude, frankly, and I'm okay, I might be wrong, but my attitude is that I don't think so. I don't think it's intuitive to build a dolmen. I do think it's intuitive to build a cairn. I think you, you can pile up um, you know, mounds of boulders, or you could construct mounds of earth. Yeah. Uh, you could even make a pyramid because a pyramid is—it's one of those natural forms that uh, you know gravity will help it to be more solid, if you like. Yeah. So, so in many ways, even a pyramid can be intuitive, but a dolmen. What on earth can be intuitive about wanting to shift twenty tons of rock? You know, it's uh, if you're in a small community with limited resources and limited, uh, you know, hands that you can put onto a job that is, let's face it, non-essential. Mm. Then why would it be intuitive for people to say, "I know what, Leah, let's spend our time shifting that thirty-ton lump of rock." I, you know, I think it has to be a shared culture with a common cause. Yes, but then that begs the question, why would anyone anywhere thinking uh, think of um, uh, piling a few lumps of very heavy rock together in order to uh, to make them? And also it's a question of the materials available, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, adjacent. By the way, I meant to ask, uh, Dolmans, um, this goes back to a question we were asked uh, a few episodes ago. Um, do we know worldwide whether um, this thing about them being covered with earth mm. and what we see now is uh, the remains of what would be an, uh, hidden under an earthen mound? Well, uh, we don't know for sure, but certainly it seems that a lot of the dolmens that you find further east uh, so into India and Asia, that no, they weren't covered at all. Uh, in fact, many of them were, mm. you know, like very proud, to use your adjective, very proud mausoleums, uh, not covered in mounds mm. of earth at all. The earth mounds seem to be a much more European style. Um, mm. And obviously we don't know why. It's an intriguing thing, you know, that... Whilst I spend a lot of my time slagging off the assumption of things um, religious, <laughs> <laughs> the fact of the matter is that it's it's a part of uh, it's not just the human condition. We, you know, we know that elephants mourn their dead. Uh, you know, monkeys mourn their dead. Hippopotamus mourn their dead. You know, it, it's uh, it, it is it's a mammalian thing. You know, and do you know yeah. what I say that there are even birds, species of birds that mourn their dead. It's uh, it's an important part of 
uh, of life, you know, the recognition of death. And, uh, and so to make a big deal out of creating mm. a home, uh, you know, or an afterlife for your ancestors yeah. makes sense. Um, I, I, nothing gets more ridiculous than the pyramids if they were truly just burial sites or tombs. But yeah. aside from the burial sites, you know, you look at places like Gebekli Tepe, uh, which yeah. one of the, the most intoxicating things about Gebekli Tepe is, is it's the oldest megalithic structure that we know about. We know that its origins go back... 12,000 years and that it's, uh, you know, even its most uh, intricate phase is, you're talking about 9,000 years. Uh, So that predates any of the the other major megalithic works. And yet, Gebekli Tepe is about as sophisticated a site as you will find, which means the culture Mm -hmm. has to have been at least a reasonable amount older to have, you know, to have got to that level of sophistication in the first place. So, okay. so when you look at places in Turkey, and, and it, it, it's intriguing how the most ancient sites seem to be in Turkey. So you've got Gebekli Tepe and Katilhoyuk. Now, Katilhoyuk is obviously more of a I say obviously, you know, for any of you folks, if you don't know, uh, do look it up because it's uh, it's an extraordinary place. It, it's a town or, a, well, I'd, I'd call it a town. You might want to call it a village. Yes, um, it's a village. Well, it, it's certainly a habitation. That's it is. Point, but it's, it? With individual uh, houses, individual cells um, yeah. in which people actually did live and cook and, you know. Yeah, and, and, and the the intriguing thing about Katilhoyuk is that where we're talking about a period in human history where generally we're looking at hunter-gatherer communities and uh, and any settlements would have been temporary. And here at Katilhoyuk, you have, a, well, you know, it's an urban settlement. This is something that is built to last, and it has lasted. You can go and see it today, mm. and it's 9,000 yeah. or whatever, was, you know, eight 9,000 years old. Uh, Gobekli Tepe, I mean, just before we sort of move on and expand that further, mm-hmm. uh, Gobekli Tepe is monumental. Absolutely. Um, as opposed to being a habit and habitation. Mm. And you have the, the oldest megaliths in the world by yes. a long way. Indeed. Not only are they, you know, megaliths, but they are carved megaliths, mm. you know, in a very precise way and also have animal carvings on, on them and other carvings. They seemingly nine, uh, sorry, 11,000 years ago mm. seem to have sprung out of nowhere yeah. in this fully fledged, um, um, ornate form. It, it is one of the most remarkable sites on so many levels. Although you can't you can't take it anywhere because we just don't know. And just to make it clear, these are not people that were finding uh, stones lying around uh, and dragging them across and, and uh, building them up. They were carved out of uh, quarries from yeah. not too far away. But they were pecked out of uh, out of the quarry quite deliberately. Yes, yes, yeah. It, it, it is. It's a big mystery. Big mystery. You know, because we we don't know where they came from and we don't know where they went. 
But you were trying to move on and uh, and talk about uh, migrations, Rupert. Yeah, it, it was looking at things of that age, because if you uh, forgive me if I bounce around, the fact is that when we talk about our own megalithic, and when I say our own, I'm talking about uh, you know the wealth of sites that we know about in the British Isles. Um, yeah. So, uh, so we talk about things that date back, you know, say five thousand years, you know, uh, three to five thousand years, six thousand years maybe, and yet here we have uh, when I say here Gobekli Tepe, uh, so we've got something that is twice that age, more than twice that age. What happened in between? And I find it intriguing that we've got, as I said, we've got Gobekli Tepe and Katalhuyuk in Turkey. And then if you travel north-west by about a 1,000 miles, mm-hmm. you get to Lubensky Vir in Serbia. Now, oh, yes. that's not particularly monumental, but it is one of the largest Paleolithic settlements in the world. And that mm. dates back also about 8,000 years. Now, you potentially, and, and I'm just tossing this in as a maybe because we don't know, but maybe you have something arising culturally, this notion of settlement as opposed to hunter-gatherer, that's, that's moving northwest. And it doesn't have to be a reason why. It's just somebody started walking in that direction. Mm. You know, it can be as simple as that. And uh, and so another major settlement has sprung up. And then when you start to look at the development of uh, of, of settlements moving into Europe, um, everything starts to become blurred. There's a period of, uh, of human history where because we weren't using big lumps of stone, there's nothing left to see. Uh, so mm. we have all these blanks that we try to fill in and we can't. And the next thing we find is that the oldest sites that we know about are in Ireland. Well, yes, that's the extraordinary thing, um, Gobekli Tepe. And then uh, give it 5,000 years, yes. 5,000 years before, you know, the Neolithic uh, kicks off properly yes. in this part of the world. Yes. And we start to yeah. see uh, the megalithic monuments that we love and know so well. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but that would be by- bypassing one uh, little place, and that is uh, Atlit Yam. Which okay. is the submerged uh, village just off the coast of Israel, yeah, yeah. which we believe has a small, if crude, um, stone circle associated. Absolutely, with it. yeah, and that is dated to seven thousand BC. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very good point. That is, the, oh, that is the oldest stone known stone circle, by the yes. way. Yes. Where do you put markers? You know, yeah. you want to put a marker in the sand, if you'll excuse the pun. You know <laughs> that um, because we have a well, we humans. We have a tendency to build new on top of old, and particularly if there's a cultural shift. So if you look at Christianity, you know, Christian churches built on what the Christians regarded as pagan sites, you know, so you try to obliterate the previous religion or whatever by by building your own on top. 
And, and one of the intriguing things in Ireland, I'm talking about Caramore here, which is in uh, County Sligo, yeah. that uh, you've got Neolithic sites. They, When they've done excavations on, on a site that is, say, five to 6,000 years old, but they found in more than one, they found that the ashes that they found underneath actually date back to between nine and 10,000 years. Oh. Implication being that we're building new on top of old. Yeah. Um, If you're looking at a period in human history where, so we've now got sites that we know of in Ireland that date back to, um, well, let's just just pay take a, a, a random figure almost that, that at least we know is valid and say and mm. say six thousand years. Yeah. Now the intriguing thing is that when you look at Dolman's style, one of the conventions is you know when people say that Dolman building is instinctive, it's intuitive, it would have therefore developed independently around the globe. Okay, well, now, if that's the case, oh, do you know what? I so wish this was a PowerPoint presentation because I don't know how I can describe it in words. But the thing is, what you would have, um, so if I can try to be uh, um, clear, if things were arising independently, so put a put your pen in the map and then, uh, and, and then however far apart you think the next intuitive origin of of dolmen culture would be so now put a pin there as well and so put a few pins in the map where you think these sites would have arisen independently now what would happen would be that the culture would spread radially and it so you would get a newer site going out in if you like almost concentric circles moving out until the sites overlapped so if you then looked at ages between sites, you'd find that they got from one site to another, they got newer and newer and newer until the edges merged and then they'd get older and older and older. Does that make sense? It's a bit like putting um, kind of, yeah. putting dartboards beside each other where the bullseyes mm. are the oldest and going out to the edges of the boards is the newest and then they'll overlap. So you go from old to new to old. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. Well, that's what would happen if they were arising independently. That's not what happens at all. Uh, if you actually do the dating uh, at the sites that have been excavated, then what you actually find is that you've got Neolithic and Bronze Age in the West, so say in Ireland and Britain, and then as you go further yep. over to the East, going through India and towards, uh, well, Korea, as the dolmen that I mentioned yep. originally, well, you find that you've got uh, Neolithic and Bronze Age in the West, but Iron yeah. Age yeah. in the East. Now, the implication there yes. is that the culture started in Ireland and then waved <laughs> yeah. back across the land yeah. to um, to the East. Now, what are we to make of that when Gebekli Tepe in Turkey is the oldest place that we know. And we, <laughs> this is a problem that we so want to make yeah. patterns out yeah. of stuff. We still want, so want a story to emerge. We so want to know what the actual history is so that we can tell the story. That's part of the, 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 the fascination. 
Um, but I think that that is the general, you're absolutely right, that is the general uh, point to make, that um, if we set aside Kataloyak, <laughs> if we set, set aside Gobekli Tepe, and a couple of other anomalies, it has to be said, one being, a couple yeah. being in Portugal, I do believe, in terms of um, a megalithic sites. Um, there's one in um, Portugal, the Almendres Cromlech. I, I think, which is a series of stone circles and ovals. Oh, yes. Um, I think, which is dated to 6,000 BC, i.e. 8,000 years old. Um, that's an anomaly in the yes. transition. But leaving that aside, generally, there is a movement then back from the West to the East. And we find that megalithic monuments in the East are much, much younger than those in the West, and especially of those of the um, the Western uh, Atlantic uh, seaboard, which is which has basically the most megalithic monuments, uh, including stone circles and uh, uh, single menhirs, as opposed to burials. Yes, uh, am I right in thinking if we go east as well, um, uh, monumental um, megaliths become? Less, i.e., we don't get so many stone circles. Get plenty of burials using large stones, yeah, but not so much in what we yeah. might term, term, um, yeah, monumental, purely monumental stuff like stone circles, like men here, stone roads. It's that interesting. Kind of There's an awful yeah. lot in India, but that's very re- uh, quite relatively recent, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. They tend to be uh, much younger, but. Uh, but the thing is, they they are all, as far as I'm aware, they're all burial related. Yeah. There are no, you know, there, there are there are no major stone circles, for example, or henges that. Okay, so the henges are predominantly British, although not completely exclusively. Um, there's uh, uh, you know, a couple of henges in uh, there's Germany. I think there's one in Portugal. Which again, you know, I I think that's a travelling culture. I, you know, it seems to be such a very specific uh, style of building that uh, I I can't imagine that it that they don't relate to each other culturally. Mm. Um, but uh, you know, you, style wise, you look at places like uh, Khan Glues, the Battle yeah. Barrow in yeah. Cornwall. Which, from a British point of view, is absolutely unique. You know, it it doesn't look like anything else, and you think, "What the hell is this place?" But then you go down to uh, the the very south of France, just uh, just the you know uh, just before you get to the Pyrenees, and there are a number of sites that, whilst they're not identical. They really do seem to hold a strong similarity. So again, yeah. with the proximity of, uh, you know, France and England, you have to wonder if there's some cultural crossover there as well. <laughs> you know. That's right, and uh, herein lies the joy and the danger of making the correlations. Um, <laughs> it's uh, you know, food for thought. Most certainly, and um, plenty of hooks to hang a decent enough story on. Um, but uh, as for proving anything, as as to being mm. definitive about any of these things, that's another matter entirely. We, 
I think that, I mean the the kind of worms that we've kind of we've opened up is that with this kind of distance, when broadening out the the horizon, we don't get clarity. We get a lot more <laughs> blurring, you know. And the further back in time, this yeah. is the other thing. The further back in time that we look. Um, it, it is like looking through a telephoto lens, like looking through a telescope. Yeah. The things that are, are further away, we may be able to, modern technology may enable us to bring them into focus, but in our minds, they sort of all get compressed together, <laughs> you know, like, like things that are further away all seem close together when you look through yeah. a telescope. But in actual fact, they can be miles yeah, absolutely true yeah <laughs> a long uh, I, I do other. think um, that that whilst we you know we uncover more and more things all the time i i do think we will get you know these moments of realization where something manifests that uh, that clarifies some of the things that we've just n not really understood before I, you know there was going across the atlantic for example you know that uh, that whilst there's so much argument about whether uh, man ever crossed the Atlantic in prehistory, uh, but uh, yes. but they found you know there is one tribe of Native Americans, just one, that has European DNA, and that is the Ojibwe tribe. Oh, goodness! Uh, now the Ojibwe tribe, whilst they've uh, whilst they've spread across the whole of North America now. But their origins were in Connecticut uh, and New England. Mm. Now, if you go back, so if you take the thread back, you know you can trace the genetic line back, and you can date it, and uh, and so you can take it back to sixteen to eighteen thousand years ago. The thing is that if you go back that far, then we're at the tail end of the last ice age, and if you actually look at the ice sheets and where they sat at the end of the last ice age, then you find that they went from Europe straight the way across the Atlantic to Connecticut. Mm. So for people who were fishing off the ice, well, the fact that it was just ice and there was no land underneath it is irrelevant. They were just walking along ice and maybe in their canoes or kayaks, whatever, that for them it would just have been a route across the landmass, and so from Europe to Connecticut, straight line virtually. Uh, so there is concrete proof that man crossed the Atlantic in prehistory. Uh, you know, it's just something that uh, <laughs> archaeologists themselves, they just take a little while to catch up with those sites. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm tempted to say is that um, the answers, you know, to the story, the answers to the migrations, and the answers to uh, how cultures affected each other, probably won't be in the stones themselves, but probably more in the techniques that are being developed. And I mean, uh, you just mentioned um, DNA, of course, mm. and of course, it is uh, uh, DNA that has given us back. Uh, the story of uh, how the um, Neolithic morphed into the Bronze Age yeah. uh, in the British Isles itself, you know, because once upon a time it was thought it was a cultural shift, but no, DNA uh, tells us that it was um, not an invasion as such, but an uh, yes, um, but migrants um, coming across that changed the the culture. 
So it is that looking in that to those kind of techniques that are going to solve these problems. These, uh, yeah, uh, the typography, which you know we yeah. so love to m make similarities between one thing or another. Unfortunately, they can't be relied on. They may help us make a story which uh, will satisfy us for a time, but we've still got to remain open to uh, other possibilities at the same time. I, I just wanted to ask you, are there any other sites from around the world, uh, Rupert, that spring out on you, uh, 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 that spring out at you, apart from uh, Gebekli Tepe as being uh, significant or worthy of a, of a particular story? Putting an individual stone upright in the earth. Now, I can see that being an intuitive thing to do. And uh, intriguingly, there's one off the coast of Sicily, I believe it is. Oh, that yes. It's, uh, it's at a ridiculous depth, 130 feet, something like that. What is it? That, what's that? 36 uh, metres depth of water. It's 40 metres. 40 metres. Okay. He says, I just happen to have something uh, in front oh, of my okay. face. Okay, excellent. Screen. That's good timing then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is ridiculous yeah. depth of water. And yet this is a standing stone. Well, it was standing. It's now lying on its side. But uh, so, you know, again, this is an issue of sea level changes, which is something else we talked about uh, a few months back. But our standing stone can be, uh, I think that can be a cultural norm. Anybody could come up with wanting to uh, erect a pillar, say. But, you know, going right up into the Arctic Circle, uh, <laughs> where you have uh, a standing stone, for example, in Norway on the side yeah. of a lake. Oh, can you just imagine what that must have looked like underneath the northern lights? Heaven. That's one of the sites that haunts my dreams because I'd like to get up there and <laughs> photograph it, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, there is a site in India, in Maripur. It's as insane as Karnak. I'll put links to that as well on. It, it is just this ocean of standing stones, and you think, you think, what what madness is this? And once again, I think it was a showroom. I think people tipped up there and they said, I'll have that one, please. And can you deliver it three weeks next Tuesday? Uh, I, I can't see any reason why you would want to stand that many irregular stones all in the same place. Um, so, yeah, that's that's probably one of my Yes, indeed. I mean, talking about uh, the um, monolith uh, that is sunk under 40 metres of water, it's off the straits, uh, in the Straits of Sicily. Um, there's also a Priscilla Bluestone, uh, a few yeah. miles off the Pembrokeshire coast, sunk in 60 feet of water. <laughs> Do you know what? I didn't know that. I did not know that. Okay. Yes, when they were trying to prove that the, uh, or test whether or not the Priscilla Stones were... Uh, were taken by boat round. Um, Is that the where they dropped it? Round the South Pole. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. It got lost off the side of two currents that were. Well, I knew. Yeah. I, I knew it got dropped off the side of two. Currents. I didn't know it was there. That, so you know, um, there, there's another archaeological like um, <laughs> anomaly. That <laughs> 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 uh, somebody can dwell over in in the uh, future. <laughs> I just wanted also to finish up with something that I'd uh, come across um, uh, is that you know when we were talking to Anthony Murphy about. Uh, Bruna Boyne and, and uh, the mythology of Ireland. Yes. Um, and the Tour de Danon and uh, the tribes and everything. I got fired up, you know, by this mythology of uh, the uh, people coming, the migrations and the Book of Invasions and uh, people coming from uh, the East 
And it is tempting to look for clues of that, you know, a complete nonsense, of course, because you can't base anything on anything. But there's um, a very interesting site in uh, Morocco, very near the the coast, uh, very near the Straits of Gibraltar. Um, And it's called the Mazura. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's an extraordinary site. The Mazura Stone Circle. Mm-hmm. Um, which essentially, uh, in description, if you took Newgrange, um, drove a JCB right through the middle of it and made a sort of crossways um, cavern, um, a quarry through the middle of it both ways, in other words, ruined it, um, but left the curbstones around the end, yes. uh, you, around the edges. You uh, have uh, the Mazura site in, uh, in Morocco. Yes. It's about the right size, and it was a burial. Uh, seems to have been a, a burial, and it's got uh, well, well over. And 100. what's more, it's the same age. Yes, yes, it's dated to around three thousand BC. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, so having I, those I, correlations are the sorts of things that drive your little brain nuts, aren't they? <laughs> they absolutely do. Yeah. Uh, and and the yeah. lovely thing is, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to bang on about this, but it just keeps cropping up that when we talk about, you know, so you're talking about uh, the, the the myths and legends that uh, that Anthony was talking about uh, a, a little while back, but also the the uh, the legend, the myth. That uh, that Kalanish was built by black men who came from over the sea. Well, the thing is that when you look at yeah. so there's sites that we know about in Ireland, and then you see a site when you think, well, that looks exactly the same, doesn't it? In Morocco, and you think, well, was that built by black men who came from over, over the, the sea? sea? Was it? Was it? Um, <laughs> oh yes, and there are other legends associated with that, you know, concerning Hercules and a battle that was fought, and uh, you know, a wrestling uh, yes. match that ended in the uh, yeah. Oh, so mm. th- there are many things out there, dear listeners. Uh, we will leave links Indeed to as many interesting sites as we can, many varied uh, sites as we can, on the website as a background to this conversation. Uh, It's been quite wide-ranging. I hope it's been interesting. (laughs) I hope it's provided uh, food for thought. But I think it's time for us to wrap that up, unless there's one last cherry on the pie that you need to to get out there, Rupert. No, I don't. I'm just going to say the cherry on the pie is there are going to be so many notes on the webpage this this month. (laughs) Was that the cherry on the pie? That was the cherry on the pie. Okay. <laughs> Shall we move on? <laughs> yeah, moving on. Moving on. Ooh, megalithic question time. Do we have a, a question uh, from somebody that we can answer as best as we can? Oh, yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, this month's question is from Alex Williams in Suffolk. And Alex asks... Is it really still unknown how the megalith builders shifted massive lumps of stone? It's a very good question, Alex, and uh, it's one that never goes away. Um, well, the one thing that we can say is that it's completely unnecessary to come up with fanciful notions like our ancestors had the power of levitation uh, because <laughs> there, there are so many different ways that you can explain it. Um, and we don't know for sure how they did it, 
but uh, but where there's, there's a will, sorts, there's a way. Well, indeed, and there's yeah. all sorts of examples that we can um, to which we can refer. Put it that way. So, I mean, one of mm. my favourites is um, to do with the Incas. Now, if you look at the amazing structures that the Incas uh, put up in Peru, particularly Peru, uh, where lumps of stone that are just immense and it, it looks completely impossible, cut to shape and all the rest of it. But there is an account from one of the Spanish missionaries who went over during the time of Pissarro or Pissarro, if you like, um, and I think it's Friar Alonso de Benavides who wrote uh, a lot of accounts about uh, the lives of the Inca. And it was a story about the Incas hauling a massive lump of rock up to, I think it was Sacsayhuaman, but uh, they were just using uh, ropes. And just, I think it was something ridiculous. Thousands of men, anyway, hauling yeah. this massive lump of rock up the mountainside. And they slipped, actually. This particular stone uh, slipped from its uh, ropes and cascaded down the mountain and wiped out a ridiculous amount of, uh, of uh, workers, killed yeah. loads of people. But the point is that that was how they did it. And if you look at... Cities like Sacsayhuaman and yeah. Tijuanaco and places, you know, it's it's it. You know, you think how many man hours involved in pulling those rocks around? Well, that's but they right. did use rocks. I think um, uh, when we ask the question, often the thing that comes into our mind when trying to answer it is we probably have a framework of uh, health and safety uh, <laughs> around it. <laughs> if, if you uh, if you elim eliminate that element of it, it frees up the mind wonderfully. I'd have thought. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Well, <laughs> but you know, there's there's another good example. In fact, if if any of you are not aware of Wally Wallington, uh, he's a a retired engineer, I think, uh, from Michigan. And Wally Wallington, through utter engineering genius, figured out ways of moving huge lumps of stone, even entire houses, single-handed, just by using mm. clever counterweights and, yeah. uh, uh, and leverage. And he's put up his own little version of, of Stonehenge, complete with trilathons, that he's put up entirely single-handed just through clever engineering skill. Yeah, uh, we'll yeah. put links to some of his stuff uh, online because he's a remarkable man. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, it just uh, it's another illustration of how it's clever thinking. We have got – we have become so used to having machinery to make our lives easier – that we've yeah. stopped thinking about how to solve problems without machinery, you yeah. know, and so things like that seem a lot more magical, maybe. Mm. Uh, but um, I, can you think of any other examples, Michael? I mean, there are things that we did. I think there have been no end of that kind of experimentations. Um, they, if, I'm sure if you look in, on YouTube, you find quite a few. I, you know, there have been several on Time Team, and uh, oddly, things come up in the news from time to time about uh, how somebody's discovered how they move the stones at Stonehenge using a lot of uh, undergraduates, and, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. 
yeah, you usually find that uh, it can move them along a bit and maybe get them in, up into the right position. But boy, it looks dangerous, you know, <laughs> whoever's uh, doing it, you know. And, and uh, But the thing is, yeah, I mean, that may be how they did it. But we can't know. We can't know. If the, if the method works, it's a possibility. Which yeah. method definitively they used, that's another mm. question entirely. Mm. The much more interesting question is, of course, what the motivator was to get that number of people all of the same mindset that to make, it, make them think that it's worthwhile to do this thing. Yeah. Uh, to yeah. risk uh, life and limb, to spend that time doing this stuff. That's the interesting question as uh, far as I, I can see. I'll tell you what, there was a couple of things that came to mind, though. One came, came to mind was uh, during an episode of Time Team, or was it the uh, special on Orkney that Neil Oliver did? Um, Depends the, what uh, you're going to say. Oh, well, they, they were trying to replicate uh, methods of moving stones on Orkney, and they were using the usual thing with uh, r- wooden sleds or something yeah, like that. that. Somebody had the bright was... idea on of, uh, oh, come on, Britain's ancient capital Britain's or something ancient like capital. that. That's, that's what it was. Yeah. Um, somebody, had, somebody had the bright idea of putting uh, seaweed down, and that worked. You know, made life a, right. a lot, lot uh, easier. And then, of course, there are the disaster stories, like the um, uh, testing the seaward route for Priscelli stones from the blue stones from the Priscelli hills, um, <laughs> yes. which they strapped that to. Didn't end well. No, they strapped it to two curraghs, and um, yeah, they sank basically. <laughs> I don't know if they yes. ever got their it stone a, back. It was a noble effort. It was put it that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I think, uh, I think that probably but it, came. Worth making the comparison as well, uh, actually, while we're on this, that there is one of the illustrations, bas relief carvings um, in Egypt that shows, and it took ages. This is something that went unnoticed for centuries. Uh, it shows them moving a massive block of stone with somebody pouring water at the front. So it was the use oh. of sand and water yeah. together that made it easy to slide the uh, the sledge mm. with the massive block of rock mm. on it move, uh, to slide it along. So th- that's the thing, isn't it? I think it shows that there are all sorts of ways of achieving any of these, uh, these things. It just requires somebody thinking outside yeah. the box. I don't know if that answers your question, Alex, but um, that, that's as good as well, you're going to get. Yeah, the answer it to the question, magic. nobody really knows. Yeah, but um, there are several people who think they do. Yes. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know what time it is now. It's time for Stonehead of the Month. Stonehead of the Month. Stonehead of the month. It is Stonehead of the month. Who is Stonehead of the month this month, Michael? Well, not so much Stonehead of the month, but uh, Stonehead probably of all time. I think you know, but we'll just have to honour him particularly in this moment, um, round about the date of the publication of uh, his probably well. It sits atop of his magnum opus, which is the megalithic portal. 
And uh, if you don't know who we're talking about by now, we're talking about uh, Andy Burnham, who uh, otherwise on social media is known as Andy Megalithic, but who has been running the Megalithic portal since uh, 2001, based on work which started in 1997, and has now um, published this month the wonderful, wonderful tome containing um, a list, uh, well, it's more than a blooming list, I tell you, <laughs> uh, featuring more than a thousand uh, megalithic sites um, from uh, Britain and Ireland. The book is called The Old Stones, um, and it is published by Watkins Media and is available now. Um, yeah, that's why Andy Burnham is Stonehead of the Month and um, uh, fully deserved. It is a piece of work, isn't it? Well, the whole thing is, I mean, starting with Megalithic Portal, which is a piece of work, you know, and uh, and uh, I don't know what we'd do without it, really. And that and the Megalithic Map, which we find there, and, and other resources. And, of course, yeah. um, based on contributions from many, many people. But it must be an extraordinary thing to do. Uh, for Andy to keep control of it, um, you know, keep uh, it uh, all under wraps and keep his sanity, <laughs> and then go and write a <laughs> yes massive uh, the keeping book. his sanity at the same time. It's just the the amount of work. Yeah. I mean, his dedication is extraordinary, and uh, uh, yes, it's well deserved, Andy. Well deserved. Um, right. So that's that. So uh, oh, what's next? Well, it's whimsy next. Whimsy. Oh, uh, whimsy. Oh, that means it's it's back to me again. It is I'm back to you this month. I'm yes. the only person that's been doing any work at all this month <laughs> on this blooming podcast. Uh, I tell you, I can't get the staff. Anyway, um, yeah, a bit of whimsy. Actually, quite a few of you probably know about uh, this one already. And uh, it's not a thing that's happened. It's not a site we've found or anything like that or somebody fallen down a pit um it's a website uh and you've probably come across um if you're a true stonehead you've probably <laughs> come across a site a website and a blog and a facebook page and a twitter account called clonehenge <laughs> now uh, clonehenge is absolutely brilliant because uh, not only is it a lot of fun but uh, also helps to give you a bit of insight into the human condition in many ways because clone clonehenge is uh, an aggregation um, a collection uh, a central point rather like the megalithic portal is for any megalithic site clonehenge <laughs> is for gathering uh, any information that there is about replicas of Stonehenge that there are out there anywhere in the world. And it doesn't matter what they're made of. They can be made of stone. They can be made of foam. They could be made of cars. There is one in Texas. Lego. Carhenge. Lego. Uh, there, are, there have been stone, uh, there have been clone henges made of cake. I kid, I kid you not. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite easy to find because all you do is uh, go to clonehenge.com. 
Clonehenge is, I'm reading this from uh, from their the own description on the blog site. This is It says, this is the most complete list of Stonehenge replicas on the internet. Nay, marry in the wide world. This blog is meant to form a searchable list of Stonehenge replicas from the megalithic follies of the 1880s to the present. You can search, for example, for a place, a nation, or a state, or you can search for replicas by the material they are made of, for example, foam henge, snow henge, or laptop henge. <laughs> uh, the blog includes well over 300 examples of imitation stone henges from a silicon microstructure to huge permanent replicas and everything in between, including the famous inflatable bouncy stone henge. <laughs> <laughs> it is barking mad. Uh, absolutely, but I think it's uh, uh, perfectly <laughs> worthwhile. It's just um, brilliant. The uh, the site is uh, managed by Nancy Wisser, who is uh, across the Atlantic Ocean in the US of A. Um, and that's oh, all I know. Okay. Yeah. Um, so there, that is that is our whimsy of the month. Go to Clone and a noble and whimsy it is too. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go. Unbelievable, isn't it? It's just it's another one passed in a jiffy. Is that it's another just, one finished? It's another one finished. Unbelievable. I was enjoying myself so much. <laughs> Don't we always? And folks, I uh, hope you, you enjoyed it too. Uh, and if you did, please consider helping us create more uh, podcasts. We'll keep the podcast going anywhere, but more great films and other content by becoming one of our valued supporters on Patreon. If you go to the Patreon site, patreon.com slash standingwithstones, just uh, have a look around, see if there's a level at which you'd like to support our production of this, the Standing With Stones podcast, or the interviews we do, the films, and lots of lots more. There's all sorts of rewards and perks to choose from, and for as little as a dollar a month, you can become one of the Standing With Stones team. You might even get a free Standing With Stones baseball cap. <laughs> Thanks again for listening. I uh, we hope to see you again very soon. Thanks folks. See you next time. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.